Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Positive Pedagogy for Sport Coaching podcast. There's always a thing about good news and bad news. I don't know if I've got some any bad news at this moment, but I've got some really fantastic news. So you, shameless plug again, you can buy your copy of the Positive Pedagogy for Sport Coaching book at the Routledge website. It came out last week where it features some of the background about the theory of positive pedagogy and then lots of information about how to apply or how coaches have applied positive pedagogy in, in various contexts ranging from individual sports like in boxing, strength and conditioning, to team sports like volleyball, American football, yada yada. So get your copy, um, it's on Amazon and all this kind of good stuff too. If you have any questions, shoot me a message and reach out to me at harveys3 at ohio.edu. So for today's podcast, we have another phenomenal, phenomenal guest, <clears throat> Dr. Ashley Allenson, who fortunately for me is a colleague of mine at Ohio University. We actually started in fall 2007 at the same time at the university. So he's going to talk a little bit about his kind of learning journey before he came to Ohio University and worked in a coach education capacity and his experiences in coaching and a little bit of the differences of the UK, the US systems uh, for coaching and things like that. So hello, should I say Dr. Allenson or Ashley? <laughs> we'll go Ashley. Ashley. Yeah. Um, hi, so, hi there, how are we doing? Yeah, good. Um, thanks for taking the time out. I know we're all busy, so it's, it, it's good. Um, so we've got various questions, so we'll crack on with the first one. So tell us a little bit, the blind date, so tell us a little bit about yourself. What's your name and where do you come from? You come so, from? Yeah, I guess that actually gets that question because you feel it, Yes, correct. <laughs> Grew up watching that for your blind date. Um, so I'm Ashley Allenson. Um, I'm 32 years old and I'm originally from Hull in the United Kingdom, England. Um, and my kind of background getting into coaching was, I got into coaching quite early. I was a, a professional um, soccer player or football player in um, England. And I'd gone through uh, an academy system um, at Hull City from nine years old all the way to 16 years old when you leave school. Uh, and I was very fortunate to be offered a, a, a contract. It's called a youth team scholarship contract, which is uh, for three years. Um, so that was kind of going into, as I left school, going into the first kind of steps into professional soccer, which is something that I'd always kind of wanted to do and dreamed of. At the time, Hull was in League Two. Um, and then two promotion seasons with the first team later while I was in the youth team. Um, they kind of got up to the championship level. And unfortunately, at 18, well, just past 18 years old, um, I was told by the, the manager at the time, Peter Taylor, who very famously gave David Beckham the, the England captaincy for the first time, mm -hmm. that I wasn't in his plans for the future and that I should uh, look elsewhere. Um, and then I was fortunate that from there, even though I'd been released, I actually dropped down uh, to League One and I signed a, uh, an 18-month professional contract with Scunthorpe United, um, whose manager at the time was Brian Laws, who played under the famous Brian Clough um, for Nottingham Forest, and he signed me. But six months into uh, my kind of reign there as a player, I, I played a, a handful of first-team games, um, kind of like three or four appearances, nothing major as a young kid and he eventually moved on to Sheffield Wednesday and the manager then that took over there was a, a guy called Nigel Atkins, the head coach, who's now 
it's weird how the kind of the circles of football and soccer where he's now the head coach at Hull City where I first started, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then unfortunately I got released at Scunthorpe um, when I was 21. And I kind of, from my first time of being released at Hull and then going into Scunthorpe, I kind of recognised the, the, the environment of professional soccer was ruthless. And, and if you weren't in the first team and you kind of didn't know when your career was going to come to an end. Um, so I kind of got into coaching quite early um, when I was 18, thinking about, well, what happens if I don't make it as a professional footballer? If I do make it as a professional, how long is it going to be until um, I kind of am out the game? Or And you're always kind of looking to protect yourself. So we ended up getting put through like a level two, an FA level two course when I was at Hull in the youth team and kind of like took a nap to it. And my dad was was a coach at the academy at the time and he was kind of my coach as a kid coming through the academy. Um, and I kind of just start, like started enjoying it. And, and from there, I asked if I could take like a, a voluntary role um, at the academy working with the under nines um, when I was 18. And, and the head of the academy, who was my youth team coach at the time, Billy Russell, um, who was now at Leeds Academy, he he said, yeah, that's absolutely fine. And I uh, started this role into into coaching at an 18 year old while still in the professional game. Mm. And then when I got released by Scunthorpe, I was still coaching at the academy this time in a paid role part time. Um, and I'd been there for two years. And when I got released by Scunthorpe, I kind of made a decision that I'm not going to kind of like go find another club and trial and, and things like that. I'm going to drop into semi professional soccer, um, which I did at, with Bridlington Town. Um, and I played for them for 10 years at quite high level in, in semi-professional soccer back in England. And then I coached part-time for for Hull for, for 10 years while I was actually doing that. And I worked with every age group in that academy setting. But I also went to university and I studied at the University of Hull and I uh, got a, an undergraduate degree in sports coaching and performance. And then I was very fortunate um, when I was 23 to be offered um, a, a PhD scholarship which started focusing on like the sociology and, and the career development of coach educators because that was always something I kind of saw myself going into in the future. Mm-hmm. So four years later, I did a, a PhD where I was looking at the, the everyday realities of coach educators. Um, so I kind of got a good understanding of kind of coach education from that route. And then eventually, um, I was coaching the community. I was then actually an assistant coach, a player coach at Bridlington Town for, for a season <laughs> um, as I was getting a bit older. Um, and taking a bit more responsibility on. So, uh, and then I eventually um, moved out over to here to the States um, two years ago and moved, delved more into kind of the academic side of coaching. Um, and then I'm dipping my toe back into to coaching at the high school level. And I've just taken on an assistant coach role with the local high school girls team here. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of excited to, to kind of see how my coaching can be impacted using different genders and as well as in a different environment to what I'm used to in, in terms of that high level academy coaching. Good. So, um, a very traveled past in uh, like all of us who end up teaching, coaching in a foreign country, although it's English speaking. So, um, we do a little bit of a game. So, um, before we get into a little bit more, your, your philosophy about coaching, um, so the game is just responding to these binary questions. So the first one is dog or cat. So you just say the first thing that comes to dog. Dog person. You like the hairs. Um, Netflix or YouTube? Uh, Netflix. 
phone call or text? I think I know the answer to this one. Yeah, text. Um, toast or eggs? Ooh, uh, eggs. Interesting. I thought the British guy was going to like toast. But, uh, <laughs> what about toast and eggs together? Yeah. Uh, white toast, yeah. Um, yeah. Ca- cardio or weights? Cardio. Facebook or Twitter? Um, Twitter. Ice cream cone or snow cone? I don't know what snow cone is, so ice yeah, cream. Exactly. So, again, you're British, so usually ice cream <laughs> cone. Uh, mobile or console games? Um, I guess mobile. Yeah. Not that I play any of them. No, well, the like that either. Walking, um, if you're walking, do you like listening to music or podcasts? Music. Or, yeah, or running would be a thing. And iOS or Android? iOS. So there you go. So it just gives people a bit of a background, get to know you a little bit apart okay. from your, your background, so that's good. Um, I haven't done any. I guess I should do, eventually I'll do some data collection on uh, which, which ones our guests talk a little bit more about, but there you go. Um, so we're going to move along, and you mentioned a little bit about your, obviously your background, which is useful, and now we're going to talk a little bit about your philosophy as a coach. Obviously, we work together, so I know a little bit about that, and I think one thing that, when it relates to positive pedagogy particularly, is this notion of um, humanism, and it was interesting that you were taking on that role in the youth game, even when you were playing. I was very much in that angle too, where I was very interested in sort of like the human dynamics with mm-hmm. with coaching and things like that. So talk to us a little bit about your philosophy and how it's been shaped by your journey and things like that. I think my, my philosophy was shaped quite early on um, with in the professional game because I just saw, I kind of I didn't, I didn't, I didn't succeed when a lot of people thought I would do. Um, and the coach that I had was kind of like, I class as an old school coach. And, and looking back now, like when I'm 32, at the time when I was 16, 17, I kind of disagreed with a lot of the things he was trying to implement. Um, he was very aggressive. He was very kind of like strict. It was very coach led. There was a lot of tactical information. It was kind of, there was not a lot of freedom for, for individuals, but I felt, I felt very robotic in, as a central midfielder. It was kind of like you're playing on the right side of a 4-4-2 mm-hmm. and you're, that, this is your role and that's all I want you to do. And it was very structured. Mm-hmm. And he, he, looking back now, he gave a lot of life lessons that you didn't realise at the time because you kind of butted, I butted heads with him quite often because I disagreed with kind of his methods and the way that he spoke to us as young kids. And I always kind of... My aim actually was based on his philosophy was to be totally the opposite. And it was kind of be more of a, a more player centered and, and definitely get basically have empathy with the players and, and understand where they're coming from. And that's something working with the, the youth kids in, in um, Hull City for, for a long time that we know what their goal was. It was always to be a professional. But only 1% make it. And one of the big things within youth soccer, that especially at that level, at that elite level, was you might not make it. And if you don't make it, what's your kind of back, back up? And obviously with my story and my journey going into university, because I didn't make it as such, even though I was a professional for five years, mm. it was kind of like, I want to try and develop you as individuals to, yeah, you're going to be great soccer players, but also you've got to be good leaders. You've got to be good communi- communicators. And basically, you've got to be ready for life as opposed to just ready for soccer. And I think within that philosophy, I was kind of 
very athlete-centred where I'd want to have a good rapport with the players. That's just something that I, I take on even in my role now as, at Ohio. Um, as a lecturer, I like to have a, a good rapport with everybody that I teach and everybody that I coach. So getting to know like, kind of getting to know them a little bit and, and getting to know what makes them tick and everyone's a little bit different. And I kind of I figured that out quite quickly with um, my own journey was that I was a little bit different to, to most. I thought differently um, in terms of kind of the tactical and technical knowledge of the game, but also kind of the social side. Um, something that I didn't really do well enough in in the professional game, um, especially with my teammates and the coaches. I was kind of a, a bit of an out, outlier as such. I didn't have the most confidence socially. So as a coach, we kind of got um, kind of eradicated in, in that setting because it's so ruthless that if you don't fit in, then you're an outcast. And that's kind of how I went through my kind of teens and, and it was it was difficult and it was it then led me when I was going into coaching that my philosophy was I've, I've got to try and bring in, if everyone's in a team, every, everyone's got to be part of that team and, and I've got to know what makes everybody tick and we've got to try and build that rapport with the, with the players and also m- myself as the coach. And, and I guess from that perspective, I was I was very empathetic with the players and I'd, I'd make a massive effort in getting to know the players and what makes them tick. And that is something I still believe in today. Well, I guess it's a little bit where having all the technical and tactical knowledge it might not be everything in coaching where if, mm-hmm. if someone can like Dave Collins and other researchers say, you know, with the personal characteristics of developing excellence, if you can learn to navigate the labyrinth and understand where you're at in your journey and develop those PCDEs, then you're going to be in a, in better shape. So technically you might not be the best or tactically, but because you can withstand some of the pressures of the game, you know, you're going to withstand the pressures of moving through the academy system and things like that. Yeah. It is ruthless. And I think, I think just on top of that as well, Steve, is the fact that one of the things that my coaches, especially in the, in the, in the pro game, because jobs are on the line, basically like, they ain't going to boost you up and they're not going to give you as much confidence as maybe that you need if you're going through a bit of a rough time. And I went through, I had a lot of injuries. I broke my ankle, I broke my cheekbone. So I was in the I was in the physio room for a long time during my, especially at Scunthorpe. I was probably there for the 18 months I was there. I was probably injured nine months of that. Hmm. Um, so that didn't always help. And it was kind of like you you just got dismissed by coaches. And then when you come back, it was like you're expected to, to hit the ground running. And, and as a young kid, especially when the first thing were doing so well, that I really struggle with confidence. And, and when a coach used to basically be unhappy with something that I did or kind of like criticise me, especially in front of everybody, I crumbled. And that, that was something as a 19-year-old and a 20-year-old I could not handle at that time. And mm-hmm. one of the reasons, again, with that philosophy was everything I tried to do is I tried to have a positive spin on it. So even if someone does something kind of not to the expected standard or level, then instead of just coming down on them like a ton of bricks, it's it's kind of tried to have a, a more positive outlook and, and kind of figure out why they did or why the thought, why the thought. And, and I think being in um, environments where you have time with the, with the kids or even have time with, with the adults, especially in the professional setting, you have an opportunity to, to kind of delve into that a little bit more. And I think a lot of coaches neglect that. And, and that is one thing I try to impact on my philosophy and try to be positive constantly, even though, yeah, we might have lost or we might not have performed well. There's still got to be a positive spin, but we've got to be kind of honest and critical, but you can still do that in a positive way, I believe. 
Yeah, and sort of like what other resources we have available to us and see mistakes as opportunities for learning. Uh, yeah, exactly. one, one little story is we had the honour of playing with each other uh, for soccer <laughs> yeah. the, other, the other night. And um, one thing, <clears throat> and I do the same when I'm playing as well, you, your comment was every time someone did something well, it was like, love it, love it, or had a good <laughs> intention. And um, I think that that was very characteristic of what you're talking about with mm-hmm. uh, philosophy to coaching too. Like, yeah, and I think on that, it's a learning curve. I've had, I've had a bit of criticism as a coach and as an educator that sometimes I do that, I overdo that, and I, mm-hmm. I shouldn't do that all the time because it's kind of, there's kind of an expectation level. And I think as I've got older and I'm, I'm now educating coaches, do you always need to praise and, and do you always need to say well done? And it's just something that it's kind of like maybe it's a bad habit from me, but I and I know we've we've had discussions about this when when you've seen me coach. But I think it's something that I, I do believe in, and I do believe that we can still be positive even though someone is potentially doing the right thing or or and it doesn't come off. Um, and it, I try to to think as a bit of an infectious kind of personality that I have that maybe then type of things will rub off and then that gives it as a little bit more energy and a little bit more um, kind of positivity to, to move forward in, in games and in, especially in practice as well. And it's well, not always the best thing to do, maybe. Well, and as you say, I mean, sometimes you're starting with a new group right now and I think you could contend that it's quite a good thing to start out with. And then you could be a little bit more bandwidth with your feedback and say, right, yeah. well, I'm only going to now communicate to the players I'm only going to start giving positive feedback when X happens do you see what I mean so yeah. you can sort of dial it back and if you have that understanding about how that works then that's useful um, so anyway um, with you starting working with a new team and obviously teams in the past and things like that part of your philosophy relates to uh, and I don't want to get into playing philosophy and your philosophy as a coach and that kind of thing but you, you do establish a team culture so you were talking to me a little bit about some of the things you were going to try and do that you think that you've read about that are, are going to be effective with the the new group that you've got so do you want to talk a little bit about those yeah definitely I think in the past and I think this is a big thing for all coaches but psychology and, and the social psych dynamic is is something that coaches don't think enough about I think they all think if you think about the four corner model the FA brought out years ago in terms of technical tactical social and psycho- psychological mm-hmm. all coaches seem to focus on the technical and tactical aspect and actually when you look at it the psychological and social aspect is probably what defines success and, and failure in terms of um, development and, and results and outcome in, in athletes and I think one of the things I've found moving through my kind of like coaching career in my 20s was that I, I too neglected it and and I kind of even though I had a thought process regarding um kind of sociology and psychology through university I didn't really strategically implement methods to impact the players it was just my own experiences and again from my communication we could try and embed something and I tried to give them confidence by what I did which would maybe a bit more coach-led and I think over the last two years teaching um, a course at the university in, in psychology and coaching, I've kind of really delved into more about the how does psychology impact players, which is key. But more, more often than not, we don't have opportunities to work with psychologists and the players don't have opportunities to work with psychologists, even at the youth level, especially at the youth level. Mm. And 
and so and I guess that within psychology it's still a bit of a taboo people don't want to use it and utilize it and if people are seeing psychologists in sport then they must be doing something wrong and they need they need to get out the rut that they're in and I think one thing that I found within teaching these classes was there are easy methods that we can utilize as coaches to get that social and psychology psychological aspect and and one of the things that I'm going to try and embed um, going in with the Athens high school girl team that I'm coaching is how we can utilize kind of like in a two-hour practice maybe the first first 30 minutes might be more of a, a, a communication um, session as opposed to an actual practice and it might be going around the room and everybody sharing um, their thought process on a maybe something that they've done during the day or even if we want to look at more technical and tactical what system we might play or what formation we might play what's the big things coming up in the next game that we want to achieve in terms of potential goal setting. And I think that way by trying to bring that in into a practice, especially a two-hour practice, where sometimes you don't always have to be on the field and we can utilise uh, a bit of a culture where we can get people sharing ideas. And, and also one of the things that we was thinking about was kind of this like leadership council, which I know the, the Ohio University football team do here, which mm-hmm. I'm a big advocate of, um, where we establish... Um, potential incoming freshmen who the head coach has worked with in the middle school we've got kind of sophomores juniors and, and seniors where potentially we could create a leadership council with two or three um, of individuals from each age group and then that way we can have the communication with them and then they can delve the information down to the players mm-hmm. so it looks more player led and then that way we get feedback from them from that leadership council as well so things like that might start establishing a culture and this is something that I'm kind of taking a risk on because I've never tried to embed it before. And it's one of the reasons why I want to embed it is because I want to practice what I preach. And if I'm teaching this class, I see the benefits of it because the research is out there saying that this percentage of um, embedding this will will improve results and, and performance. So we want to kind of influence that and, and utilize that. But on the flip side, it's good as me as a coach want to take a risk and and I'm willing to take a risk to try and embed it and, and try and be creative with different methods. And, and again, it's, it's a learning curve. And I'm not, af- I'm not afraid to kind of try something. If it doesn't work, quickly reflect on it and say, right, how can we make that better in the future? Or what can we get from the girls to improve in the future? And mm-hmm. I think they're key, they're key parts of kind of creating that team culture. I, had, um, I did a soccer camp in Nevada way back in Carson City. It was a team camp and they, it was really interesting because it was a girls group, a you know, high school group, because it was getting to that point where they were allowed to start training, but they couldn't train yeah. with a coach. And they said that um, one thing their coach did that they really liked was because they were always turning up early for the practices. And I was like, well, you don't need to be here till five um, for practice or four o'clock, whatever it was, in yeah. the Nevada heat. And they like him. Um, Oh no, we we're fine. We get here all the time, fifteen minutes early, because our coach says to us that practice started here. If you want to come and socialise, which I recommend that you do, really your practice starts fifteen minutes earlier, mm-hmm. and then people were able to socialise. And it was it, that one was quite loose um, in terms of the coach wasn't there, kind of doing anything formal, but the notion was that that was a space for that kind of developing that social yeah. moral environment. So. It was kind of an expectation, uh, expectation from the coach that they would show up. But the girls kind of wanted to show up early and have a, a chat and catch up before the game because that was part of their culture. And then similarly, yeah. 
there would be kind of a reflective piece at the end and then there'd be a little bit of downtime after until they went home. So it was a two hour kind of practice, although really it was only an hour and 30, 30 minutes. So yeah. once they started, it was like we were, they were going. So going. they didn't take too much. Because that's a bit of the criticism sometimes with the positive pedagogy. If you're using a lot of inquiry, sometimes you have to stop practice players cool down too much and then blah, blah, blah. It's hard to get them going. Um, so that kind of method is, um, has been used out there. So it'll be interesting to see how it goes. Definitely. Um, and I think, I think also on top of that, you've got the kind of aspect that where you can do smaller, kind of more intense kind of practices. And that's something where, when, especially out in, here in the States compared to the UK, where the the we coach for two, three hours at a time and, and it's kind of like a quantity of a quality, quality aspect. And I think we can implement, if we're still going to have that two or three hour practice time, we don't have to be out on the field for that three hours or two hours. We can we can be creative as coaches and, and try to utilise more of the psych social and inquiry base where it takes a little bit more time. But if we do it right, maybe prior to practice or, or within that first 30 minutes and then like a big debrief for the last 30, 20 minutes, then all of a sudden you're only on the field for an hour and 10, hour and 20 minutes and you get a really good intense session mm. and get the, get the basis of that technical and tactical element in order to kind of influence them. And then that way you've got high-level um, coaching. They get a lot of activity within that hour and 20 minutes as opposed to a lot of kind of stopping and standing and letting the body cool down. But then you've got that 30 minute before and 30 minute after where you can utilize that positive pedagogy in a, in a positive way. Yeah. And there's not much research on how those, I mean, we wrote about this in a recent paper, like how the outside of coaching setting, like the actual playing side of things could be taken out of the session and like video sessions and those yeah. could be inquiry based and how those really impact then the on-field sessions. Uh, but the the one thing we know is that you got to be consistent. You can't be yeah. very direct instruction in a movie session or in that kind of open social moral environment in a, the, the girls could, uh, come into practice 15 minutes earlier and then they get on the field and you start yelling and screaming at them. Yeah, and exactly. what to do. So whatever you do, you've got to be consistent across them. So in and then, just, sorry, just before you ask the next question, I think within that, I'm just thinking back to kind of our, my experiences within the academy. And we, we used to be on, on travel on a bus for away games and we could be traveling like an hour, two hours away. And it's a lot long, a lot further in this country. But back in England, we'd be playing potentially someone like Newcastle or Middlesbrough and it'd be a two and a half hour journey. And what we used to do, we used to take the tactics board onto the, uh, onto the bus and we get our group of players. So if I was working with the under-14s, we'd be at the back of the bus with the 14s and we'd be talking about the systems. But then what we'd do is we'd give them the tactics board and then we they could lead it. And that was something that we tried to embed on away journeys, especially before the game and then after the game as well on the way back. So it was a way in which we could try to create their thought processes through kind of a, a team culture, yeah, but also individually. And it was a good way to kind of get good rapport with them like again with that inquiry-based approach seeing what they thought about it and I think that's a key element what we could utilize and I think sometimes when you go on these long trips it's easy as a coach to sit at the front of the bus and, and everybody else at the back of the bus and then you just have this disconnect and one thing we tried really hard at the academy was to try and bring that kind of coach athlete relationship together by utilizing what we've done on the on the field and what we've done in practice and how can we embed it into the game today 
Yeah, so that um, is all good reflections on that process. And it really is about what the outcome of positive pedagogy is, which is developing that social moral environment, which you've already highlighted is ostensibly the important aspect of everything. Yes, you use the three features of positive pedagogy, but the outcome is that social moral environment. Um, so speaking of the features, um, the first one, and you talked a little bit about this already, designing and manipulating the learning environment. So I mean, here it might be, you know, as a starting out coach, what were you doing in terms of designing and manipulating and what are you doing now? You know, what are the major differences and things like that? I'd, I'd say a lot of the differences was kind of, ours, as we all do as coaches, we, we, when we start out, we reflect on kind of like the coaching that we'd had. And I, I remember going and doing my first ever session with uh, an under nine team. I did a basic passing session where it was literally in threes and you got two either side with a ball and one in the middle and that one in the middle was working and going and bouncing off and, and mm -hmm. basically doing like these five yard little shuttle runs. And because that's what we did and it was like a technical thing. And then as, as I've kind of developed and gone through, um, different kind of coaching education programs and provision. Um, one thing I, I will say is that the UEFA B that I did when I was 19 years old didn't really set you up at all for positive pedagogy. It was the old school stop, stand still, right? And, and it gives you a great insight into like the tactical element and the technical element, but never ever thought about kind of like the decision-making processes players go through. Mm -hmm. And I think from there, one thing that I've tried to really embed over the last, definitely over the last three or four years coaching is try to create these wacky sessions that if someone came to have a look at it, would go, what is going on here? But when you're actually in it, the amount of decision-making that's going on in a basic passing session is unbelievable. And like, for instance, we just, like one of the things that I used to do, we'd have like um, three teams in, and each team had kind of two or three balls and each team could only pass to each other. And to begin with, that's that's really basic. But then one of the things was it was using the, the full area of, of the field, so it could be like a, a, a forty by sixty area, and everybody's using it. But then, like you'd throw in manipulations and, and conditions that every pass can every can every pass be over ten yards. If you're going to play a five yard pass, can it be first time? Um, every time you receive it, can you turn out on your back foot? Every time you receive it, can you get in between two players of a different colour? And all of a sudden, all you do is throw these kind of different kind of conditions out there or different challenges to the players. And as I use the analogy that you kind of you're planting a, a plant, so you, you're planting a seed in the in the mind, and then you're letting it grow. And one of the things that I I, I think is probably a, a, a positive of my coaching. And something that I really take pride on is kind of like the creativity that I try to do within kind of different drills and different sessions. Mm. And even take last night, for instance, I was working with the girls and we had we had ten players there. Um, that was there as, as a bit of a it was kind of like an off season practice that we're allowed to do. And we had and I was I could only be there for the first thirty minutes anyway, um, as I had as a a, a meeting that I had to go to, and. I'd, I'd never seen these girls work before and one of the things that the head coach said is the control and the touch isn't great. So basically I, I got them into really basic, it was hot and the, the, the feel that was playing on was kind of long and, and dry. So I was like, do you want me to work anything technically? And he was like, yeah, great. And, and he said about kind of control, but he said, because the feel's so bad, can we look at control in the air? So I was like, yeah, no problem. So very, really basic, I just got them in twos and I was, I was just throwing the ball to one another and they had to control it with different parts of the feet and then the thigh and the chest. 
and that was real basic. But what one of the things that I did to totally switch that up was that instead of throwing it underarm, like most coaches have met them do in this technical session, they had to do it as a throwing, like so it's over over the head. Mm-hmm. And then I put them in a square and I said, every time you control the ball, your aim is to try and keep the ball in the square when you control it. So it's like you've got a yard around you mm-hmm. where then players aren't coming in and taking the ball off you potentially. So from a real basic technical session that the, the head coach wanted me to work on, I was already throwing decisions in and it was kind of like, we went through some structured stuff in terms of like control with the foot, control with the thigh, control with the chest. But then it'd be like, right, now next time the ball comes into you, what different ways can you control it with the foot? What different mm. ways can you control with the chest? And all of a sudden then it became decisions. Mm. And then do you volley it back or do you pass it back? Mm. And all them things, I was just, I won't tell them what to do. It was kind of like, these are all the things that you can do. Mm-hmm. Now it's up to you if you want to do them or not. Mm-hmm. And and you could just see the, the decision-making processes all started changing. And again, from a basic technical session, which we've still got to do, and it was only 20 minutes, we still can still embed this kind of inquiry approach and, and make them think about decisions and really be creative with how we just do basic drills as such, even though we want to kind of move away from them. There's still a way for in that for in terms of skill acquisition, in terms of repetition, you still need that. Mm-hmm. but you don't have to do the same thing so it's robotic it can be creative and it can be where the players make many many decisions in the space of like one minute of receiving a ball yeah I think that a lot of that is we did at Loughborough we did a well I did a postgraduate certificate in education and one of the first lectures I had was Len Armand and it was track and field if you can believe and Len was very immersed with the the um, great British athletics uh, thing and they had the this athletics pace setters course. So it was all about creating challenges and the, it was probably that athletics pace setters course and stuff that Len did with us in track and field or athletics was probably some of the best stuff we did because it was very technically based, but it was just a range of challenges. Can you yeah. do this? Can you do that? How can you get from A to the B? What foot patterns can you use? And this kind of thing. And you had to have that creative problem solving, but within or to learn individual technical requirements so yeah. this sort of that's the idea again the positive pedagogy is it moves away from a game-based approach where people get into oh i've got to have a game then i've got to have a skill yeah. and game to this kind of like well i can still teach technique but i can still use inquiry when i'm doing it and questioning or set challenges and create problems to and i think i think one of the things that and and when i've gone through coaching education it's kind of like a flavor of the month type of thing where for instance game like whole part whole was huge like five or six years ago and everybody went to a course and everyone was saying right this is the next best thing everyone needs to go back into their own environment and do it mm. and it was interesting to see kind of the more older coaches in in the room that had gone to this kind of coaching education um provision because they all turn around after it and all those young coaches are saying right we're going to try this and we're going to try that and they go but why reinvent the it's only reinventing the wheel like you, you can't reinvent the wheel it's still doing the same things it's just with a different thought process mm-hmm. and basically one thing that i've kind of developed over my philosophy and over my time is that there's these unbelievable methods that like play practice play game-based approach tgfu that we can implement but we can't just use one method and i think this is where positive pedagogy is really good because it kind of embeds how we can utilize all methods but how you can then impact your philosophy within each of them methods. And I think as a coach, if we can vary what we're doing, but there's consistency there, then we've got more impact on the players. And then that way they can develop more of that kind of holistic um, 
way, if you like, through our communication and our interaction, which I think is absolutely key as a coach. And again, it's not just that technical and tactical aspect where you tell them what to do and they go and do it, which is great because someday they're going to leave you as a coach and go to another coach. And one thing that I have found coming over here and watching other sports and, and observing other sports is how much players and athletes rely on their coaches and then eventually they get to the next level and it's kind of like, well, no, you need to know this. And if we're not setting them up early enough to make decisions, then we're basically setting them to fail in the future because when they do get to that next level and they can't rely on the coach, then they've got to make their own decisions out there. Mm. Um, so within that example you used with the technical stuff, I mean, you were talking a little bit about how you were setting challenges and I guess you could say, asking the question like, can you show me how to do yeah. X? What were some other ways in which you were maybe using questioning and inquiry to get the girls to... Well, one of the basic ones was, um, so if we're going to throw the ball in here and if we want to control it um, with our right foot, what type of ways can we shape our body? And so that was just one basic question. And mm -hmm. so some of the girls would be saying, right, I could put my hand out to show that I want it on my right foot. Mm -hmm. I could tear my body to show to pretend if there's a defender behind me to protect the ball. Um, if that defender was on my left shoulder, for instance. So again, from them questions, they, I could see what their thought process was. And if they didn't have a, um, a, a response, um, which is fine in, in the group of 10 because it was kind of an open question to begin with, mm -hmm. then what you could do, well, well, what I did do is at the end of each rep that I was doing, was working for a minute, was before the next, um, before the change partners and, and, and started again, it was going to an individual and just saying, right, so what what was the best way in which you could control the ball with your foot? And, there was, and then I'd find out their, their understanding. And I think one of the, one of the uh, individual girls there was, was, is an incoming freshman. She really struggled because she was putting a, basically putting a leg up too high to control it with a foot when maybe she, she'd gone with her thigh. Right. And she said, oh, I'm struggling because it keeps hitting my shin, my shin guard. Mm -hmm. So I was like, well, if that's because your foot's going up in a, in a, in a way where you're bringing your knee up too far, what other ways might you use the technique? And then she said, well, I might use the side of my foot where I can then open my groin out. And again, from that, it only took me 30 seconds to have this conversation with her. And that 30 seconds whilst other people were getting a drink. So I think that way we can, we can use that inquiry-based approach and questioning as, as a team to begin with and definitely in an individual perspective when we've got drinks breaks or mm -hmm. we are changing our little drill up. Yeah, and then you could also ask them to show you, you know, in that little interaction, oh, can you show me what you mean by that if I feed you a ball? Or when we go back into the practice, can you show me what you mean by what you're saying or something? Yeah. Because I think sometimes it's okay getting the, the five or six answers back or them having a discussion, but ultimately you want them to show you. But it's a, it, again, that show me is a, is a kind of case of, well, show me your different ideas. Mm -hmm. let's come back let's kind of have a conversation and reflect on some of the ideas and the utility of them then go back and try them out again so it's this sort of notion of um, um, try and make the error and yeah. then go back reflect make the errors again but the fact is that by making the errors you get better do you see what I mean rather than oh, and that is what that is one thing I found last last night now these girls they're not technically great at all and they've got a lot of work but 
one of the things that they all did was make errors. And one of the things in that session was they had to learn from it. And, and I think I'm a big advocate, learn by doing. And that is one thing where these repetition drills are really good because you can constantly make errors and then rectify them quickly and, and, and see where I'm making that error as a, as a player. And I think, again, which maybe a, a game-based approach doesn't always do, is because if they're not getting a touch on the ball for the next two or three minutes for whatever reason, then they might not, or they might not be put in that situation again. So they might not know the right answer, where sometimes with a more kind of linear drill, as we say, a linear um, kind of repetition drill, mm-hmm. you can get them doing the same things over and over again, but it being a little bit more loose because like with the throwing coming in, it won't always go into the foot, it might go into the chest. Mm-hmm. Then they've got to make that decision quickly, which, which part of the um, body they need to use, how they're going to control it. And then as soon as they pass it back, they're getting another one in. And I think, again, from that positive pedagogy, it's how us as coaches get them to think about the decisions they're making and why, basically the purpose of behind it. But then the next thing, and, and which I'll do on Thursday, tomorrow when I'm, when I'm coaching them, is that I'll put them into a game and it, and I want to see if they've improved that, that, that technique. Mm-hmm. And then I've got to figure out some sort of constraint that I want to do to, to see that, that technical aspect. And one of the things that I am thinking is going to be a bit of a keep-away game and they're gonna, there's going to be boxes in there. And the way that they can score a point is by controlling it in the box. Mm-hmm. And if they keep it in the box at the time, unopposed to begin with, they get a point. Then it's going to be going to be a pause. And then all of a sudden what we've done is we've done that basic repetition where they've kept it in the same yard area. And then hopefully when they're getting, a, getting put under pressure, they're able to use the body based on some of the questions that we, we asked them, what they answered. Yeah, and if you'd had longer the other day, you could have gone back and forth between the sort of more technically focused and then a little bit more of a game-based focus and not worry about game, skill, game and all this yeah. practice play. But you just, just keep going back and forth. Yeah, and, and do it that way. Um, so what have been, I mean, and I know it's kind of a honeymoon period, but you could also talk about at the university too. So when you've got, kind of took this kind of approach with designing and manipulating and using a bit more questioning and inquiry, what's kind of been a bit of the feedback that you've, that you've got from the learners and what kind of process, uh, progress, sorry, have you seen the learners make? I, I think the big, the big thing in terms of this is the fact that we, we're teaching all these different sports and, and I'm, I'm going to use football as an example, especially when you look at the kind of the environment and, and the, the context and the culture that's around football, where it's very kind of, whenever I've gone out to watch a football practice and whenever I've seen football practices and, and watch students put on micro-coaches, Everything's very linear-based. It's kind of a quarterback throwing to a wide receiver, unopposed. Mm-hmm. And one of the things within this that I quickly saw, as, and as well, basketball with layup lines is something I kind of talk about quite often as well, is why mm-hmm. did, what's the purpose of a layup line? Like, we never get a free layup. You never see it in the NBA on college basketball and getting a free layup. It's always there's an opposition there and there's always a defender in the way. So why do we even do them? Mm-hmm. Um, as it, and most of the students come back, well, it's just the way it has been. It's just the way it is. And so one of the things I'm trying to do with this kind of inquiry-based approach is try to make them think and and kind of break the mould in these different sports. Like soccer has done, and it's probably, soccer is one of the ones, especially in Europe, that's kind of like focused on the way that they can change the coaching methodologies and and go away from kind of this old school um, kind of method 
and within this it's kind of giving them a, a problem or giving them an activity to go out and, and practice so one of the things that i did in my, in my skill acquisition class was we've got kind of a linear drill that you have to create and then i want you to create the same kind of outcomes of that linear drill but make it non-linear so making it more kind of is there opposition there they still get the same repetition but it's not technically a game but is there a way in which we can adapt a very very basic drill and make it a little bit more game realistic and game representative without it being in the game and i think within that i saw in the in the fall just gone that um a football coach was doing a throwing quarterback to wide receiver and how we made it non-linear was he put a corner back in which was fantastic and then and then it went one-on-one and it was where that there was running different routes and I was like, great. And then I said, why don't you do two on two? And they said, we'll never do that. So I said, what do you normally do then? He said, normally go 1v1. And the next thing is 7v7 before 11v11. Mm. I said, well, in soccer, we build it up by going 1v1, 2v2, 3v3, 5v5, 7v7, 8v8, or maybe even overloads as well. So you could put, like, for football, you could put safety in there. So by trying to make them think about different things and just say, why don't you have a go at it? Then all of a sudden, they tried it. And the first thing that happened was the two wide receivers, so they went 2v2 and the quarterback had the ball, the two wide receivers ran a route and they ran inside and they both collided. And I said, now that is exactly what could happen in a game. So this is where now you've got to work with that 2v2 where if it was 1v1, they wouldn't ever collide with anybody because there's no one else there. And I said, you've got to try and represent the game even though you're trying to get this linear kind of outcome and that is some that's just an example of like how we can embed a bit of a inquiry based approach to make them think about how they can maybe adjust different things and challenge them to really go outside the box as I say to create and be creative with their session and practice designs yeah I read an article this morning on Newcastle United on how they use big data as well and they get all the data in from so they get the optostats and they have a guy who crunches all the data and basically they plan training sessions all around what the tendencies of the opposition are mm. that following week. So that requires that use of holism. So you need to understand the, the, what you're going to do, what the opponent's responses are likely to be and how you might solve those particular problems. So mm. if you take that in your context, I mean, the notion is that we need to be getting coaches who are responsive to understanding how opposition play or different tendencies within oppositions so that we, because if you just run the same route 24 seven, that's not really being responsive to the different ways in which people are going to defend um, those routes and things like that. No, and I think within that, within soccer and you look at the way kind of Pep Guardiola in with Man City has kind of changed the, changed the landscape of tactical um, understanding by bringing the fullbacks into the centre of midfield when they've got possession and dropping the, the deep line midfielder into a, make a third centre back mm-hmm. to dominate possession is something that they have seen because what when he was at Barcelona and probably and even at Bayern Munich when he probably was coming up against teams that could figure them out not that there's many out there but when there was teams that figured them out in terms of keeping possession because they had the fullbacks wide and, and up they just break on them. And it was a way in which yeah. by having that three, and it's something that they've done well with Fernandinho, but having the three centre-halves, even though he's a centre midfielder, and the full-backs pushing in, when they lose the ball, they've still got that security at the back. 
and then teams can't spring on them as much. And then the, because they're then overloaded in midfield and they probably have six central midfielders, yeah, they then if the they do, back. yeah, they can win the ball back quickly for the press. Mm -hmm. So that way is one way in which he's seen opposition tendencies playing against him in terms of counter-attacking of how they've been able to eradicate that. And then if you look at the possession stats Man City's had this year, they are dominating teams even more than normal Guardiola teams, which yeah. is incredible. But that's got to, that's come from Guardiola and his and his other coaches and his statistics. Well, the ironic thing is that we we do that kind of five on the back uh, thing in field hockey, and it was a big thing that we were doing it in 2013. It was big with the England teams. And um, it's kind of funny how we see that transposed to soccer now, those yeah. ideas. So, it's, it's, it, like I said, it's just a bit funny. So, if you were going to try and kind of think about advocating for a sort of a process for empowering athletes within sessions or within your classroom, so what, what are some, like, here's step one, step two, step three that you would kind of recommend for coaches? I think to begin with, uh, in terms of empowering athletes, number one is is talk to them and communicate with them, and on an individual basis, and find out. Even it, especially in the youth setting, but I'd think about this in every every setting. It's not always about what they're doing in in the sport. It might be something what they're doing in their everyday life. And I think step one is definitely get to know your athletes by having communication with them and having conversations. Now that can be quite difficult because, as I've found. When, as even as a professor, and I'm I'm teaching people that are the same age as me, there's always kind of that social power that goes on within the hierarchy of organisation, which is kind of like if I'm the coach and you're the player, then I've got more power than you, and and that way they might not interact with you in a bit more of a a, a fluid, mm -hmm. holistic way. And I think that's something that we've got to try and chip away at, and it's difficult because players will always treat their coaches in a little bit of a different light and they'll never be the self. But just by trying to have that communication and forcing that communication will eventually allow you to build them relations and that rapport. So I think that's step one without a shadow of a doubt. Mm -hmm. I think step two in terms of practice is getting them all to be vocal within questioning. And I think one thing that I do in the classroom and, and I need to maybe do it more on the field in, in terms of practice is is kind of directed questioning and be mindful of the players that you're working with and understanding their knowledge and when you ask questions are you posing a question to a certain individual or just to the team mm -hmm. and I think that way we can empower athletes by making them vocal even if they don't want to be it might have to be done in a one-on-one -on -one situation where we ask them questions but if you can do it in a team setting then we can really step up our game in getting them to show their understanding to us through their answers or even like what you said earlier about them showing you from a demonstration perspective. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one way we can empower, empower our athletes. And I guess they're the two big things that I, I would utilise as, as empowering. But the big you thing said, as well um, is, And you said like leadership group too. Yeah. Was another way in which you would, like early on you'd get a bit of a leadership Leadership council. Yeah. yeah, and again, from, from that, every, most sports have kind of leaders and, and leadership um, roles, i.e. captains. Um, but, and we, me and you both grew up in, a, in an environment where there's only ever one captain, mm -hmm. you know, and a vice captain. And then you come over to America and you realise that even in soccer, which kind of I found difficult to comprehend to begin with, like mm -hmm. I'm going to watch your, your women's soccer team here and they've got four captains and they're all wearing captain's armbands. I'm like, kind of like, that's right. not 
what I'm used to. But then when you start speaking to Aaron Rodgers, the 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 coach here, not the quarterback for the Packers, but the coach here <laughs> for the women's team, he talks about how the 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 women that he coaches utilize that leadership role and and them having that leadership council is, is a huge way in which he can empower them as women so that when they eventually move on from the university that they're ready for normal society and they're ready to question normal society um when they go out in the real world as such away from the university um and again from from that perspective we as coaches can play a huge role in in developing shaping our athletes' futures and, and their their characteristics and their personalities. And if we give them a voice in the locker room and on the field and whatever, even in that coaching environment, then they're going to have a voice in the future as well. Good. So what are some – you mentioned this already. You mentioned about the social power and stuff. So some of the challenges associated with opening it up a little bit in terms of coaching – so you open up the sessions where people do have more voice and choice and things like that. What are some of the challenges that you have? I think the, cha- the challenges in general uh, for coaches would be time. And I think that we can often go off track when, and I find this in, in, in lectures, for instance, when I'm working with um, the students here, you can go off on a tangent and it's, and then it's kind of like our job to facilitate that. And if we don't, if you don't have experience in it and it's something that you've got to learn and it's a difficult thing to learn, but the only way that you do learn it is by doing it and practicing it, then we've got to be brave and take risks and say, well, if we don't get through all our practice, that's okay because we're trying to embed that. But that's a limitation and a negative, if you like, because then you might not get through everything because mm. you are let, allowing them athletes to have a voice. And I think the, the biggest challenge i found is buy-in. And at the youth level, I think that's an easier um, concept because – you can have a bit of more of an influence on them. and But then the, the negative might be the buying from the parents, for instance. Mm. So they're like, well, we didn't do this back in my day. Well, you need to be telling them what to do. And it's kind of like, well, you don't see the bigger picture because they're not thinking about that. They're just thinking about their only son or daughter and what their kind of impact is at that time instead of the future. So that's one thing that we love challenges as coaches. I've definitely had as a challenge as a coach, uh, especially out here in the States, um, where when you coach him, um, they're expected to be coaching a certain way and I think we're changing the, the landscape of that and I think other challenges at maybe the collegiate level is if you're an assistant coach and you're working with a head coach that isn't utilising that how can you still kind of buy into their philosophy when you maybe disagree with it after going through um, potentially this type of education um, but personally the challenges for me in terms of positive pedagogy was just I guess I guess the, the, the biggest challenge I've had is how I'm constantly trying to ask questions and constantly trying to get this inquiry-based approach. And maybe I go kind of like to the nth degree in this. So I'm always utilizing it. And sometimes somebody, and I'm going to find this with a girl, sometimes they just want to tell you or they want me to tell them, this is why you do it go off and do it instead of it's always got to be their decision-making process. And I think just on the flip side with that as well is when I was working at the academy, when we was going through this positive pedagogy and and this approach that we was utilizing, when it came to assessments or unfortunately when we was releasing kids, uh, and again, a bit of a brutal environment, we was releasing nine and 10-year-olds and they weren't getting the contract for the following year. 
and the parents go come back and say, well, you haven't really helped them. And mm-hmm. I'm saying, so how haven't we helped them? And they've said, because you don't tell them what to do, you just keep asking them to mm-hmm. show you, and they can't do it and they don't understand it. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's a challenge, what we've got to be mindful of. Again, we're parents, but we I'm very, very reluctant to give the answer straight away, but there's a time and place where somebody sometimes needs the answer, and we've got to be mindful that sometimes we have to give the answer but we can't be every time because they've got to they've got to go through a learning process just like what we're doing as coaches going through that learning process but like you say i mean the flip side and it's maybe the thing for all of us is you i was running yesterday and um my son's riding up this hill and he's already got up this hill once and then we ran back down he cycled back down it and then he's going up the next time and he's kind of struggling and I just started to give him a little bit of a nudge, you know, like a hand on the back to push him up. Yeah. And, but I'm just like, why am I doing that? Like he yeah. needs to struggle his way. So I think that that's a, another thing is knowing when to just be quiet. Yeah. And you've asked your question and you've said, show me. And then they do have to work it out rather than, oh, I have to help him through everything and because I'm the coach and that kind of social pressure. So I think that's a, a big thing. And I think we both kind of experienced that at the university as well with with kind of students it's knowing yes when to ask and when to tell and there's a there's a big difference in when to just be quiet and yeah and know when to be quiet and sometimes you have to be quiet in difficult scenarios where you know you're going to lose or you know someone's going to be upset with you because you don't give them the answer do you you see what i mean i think just on that two two things kind of just about finished out but just two little things first of all i like what you said about kind of working with your son is that sometimes I need that nudge though. And maybe you did it a little bit too early. And I think that's in, in terms of a coaching perspective. Mm-hmm. Are we giving that nudge a little bit too early? Mm-hmm. Let them fail once or twice. And then if they fail a third time, then they definitely need the nudge. And that's and that's failing in a game as well. And it's not all about winning and losing. Maybe at the collegiate level and the, and the professional level, jobs online, I get that. But at the same time, it's we've got to allow them to fail because that's how you learn. And, and we are too easy as coaches to give them that nudge too early. Mm-hmm. And then on the flip side, a little bit of an experience that I had with going back into my academy coaching days, we, we were playing Leeds United and the head of the academy was my old youth team manager that I mentioned earlier, who kind of I butted, head with, butted heads with. Bit of a, an interesting story was, mind the 13s were playing Leeds and the 13s were a very good side. And... Where three, we played three periods. So, first period we come off three zero down, twenty minutes gone, and it's a massive learning curve for me because I I kind of went the positive pedagogy kind of went out and it shouldn't have, but it did. And it was kind of like you're not doing this well, you're not doing that well, you're not doing this well. We need to do we need to do this better. And then I said, right, go and show me how to do that. And I think sometimes results can play a part in in how we. Um, interact and behave and I think this is something that I've had to learn and I learned through this so they went back out and within two minutes the five zero down and I'm kind of like I've and then I went quiet and I didn't say anything for the rest of the game because I didn't want to get on on at them when I was angry and frustrated at my players performance Mm -hmm. anyway it came off after the game and we did a bit of a debrief and I just said what's and we we went back to more kind of question and inquiry approach after the game in the dressing in the locker room we talked about like where where can we do better, what can we do better, et cetera, et cetera. And then we had a bit of a team meeting. But then as I'm walking away to back to the bus, my head of academy comes over and he kind of tells me, um, like, 
get, basically give me some brutal advice as a coach. And he says, what you did there was unacceptable. And I said, what do you mean? He said, basically, you being quiet was the reason they got smashed 8-0. And I said, it was already 5-0 down. Now was it my fault? And he turned around and he says, because sometimes when you're in a position where you're getting, uh, your players are showing the white flag surrendering and we're in a bit of a bad spot, Mm-hmm. That's where they look to the coach. And that's where sometimes then the coach has to step up. Mm-hmm. And even though we don't want to do it, that's where we step up and be more encouraging and even more kind of give more feedback than what you normally would do. And it's kind of like, and I, I do a bit of some research on kind of like impression management, which is kind of like research in sociology. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you have to change your behaviors and your interaction based on the environment and the situation. So that in that perspective you might have to change your impression of of what you do and your behavior and your management of your behavior and your emotion by being a bit even more positive and even more um kind of enthusiastic in order to get a reaction from them mm-hmm. and this this has stuck with me for the last seven years and this season i was coaching the men's um ohio university club soccer team and we played Cincinnati University here at uh, Athens on the worst field I've ever coached on, I think. Um, and they, they came and, and they could tell the University of Cincinnati have got beautiful facilities. And we wanted to play on turf, but we couldn't get a, a turf um, like available. So we played on this field, grass field. It was awful. And we were 1-0 down and after 20 minutes and we get a man sent off. So we're down to 10 men. And the referee's having a nightmare. And I've got 12 men on the bench, the, the, the boys on the bench, shouting and creating at the referee. Anyway, the ball, we came in at half time and we're 1-0 down and we're playing okay. And I turn around to him all and I says, we can only control the controllables. All we can do is think about what, what we can do on the field. So first of all, what's our issue at the minute? And they all came back and said, the referee's a joke. So I said, right, we can't control that referee. So what we can we control and then they was talking about the system and the shape and their work ethic and their attitude and I said so when we go back out I don't want you to think about the referee and if you get frustrated with their decisions we we don't worry about that I on the sideline was basically telling the players on the bench not to react to the referee mm-hmm. and with 10 men against University of Cincinnati which I think was ranked seventh in the country at club level this year we ended up beating them 2-1 and it was just one of them, it was one of them moments in coaching that you walk away and you go, something that the players embedded and believed in from what I kind of asked them to do was, and challenged them to do at half time was a huge positive. And, and that, that, they're the type of rewarding things that you do as a coach. But that came from that seven years prior when my coach, my head of academy basically annihilated me for, for, for throwing the white flag out. And I went the other way on that day and I was encouraging, I was, was asking questions and I was getting the players on the bench to come in and that inquiry and that positive pedagogy in a game situation was actually a real positive. Yeah. Well, and sometimes you're isolated as a coach because you're just there on your own. It's nice when you're like Steve Kerr and you have someone talking in your off. ear and yeah, bounce your ideas off. But sometimes you can only learn by making the mistake the mistake but it goes back to knowing when to ask and knowing when to tell and getting that balance right and yeah. um, so so in terms of your plans for the future obviously you're gonna stick it out with us here at ohio university Hopefully. And <laughs> um and you're coaching the the high school soccer team so um anything else on the horizon 
Um, no, I think the main thing for me is continue to develop as an educator and, and inform um, the students that I'm working with in this program, um, which I think I've done um, a pretty good job of over the last two years and I'm always learning to continue to do that. One of the big things that I've, I've kind of missed in these two years because of the, the job responsibilities and the time constraints was kind of the coaching element. I've been able to dip my toe in with kind of the club soccer teams on, on campus. But this year, I thought I really want to get into the high school environment to basically understand the landscape and understand the context. And I've been very fortunate that I've been able to get an assistant role with the local high school here and also then work with girls, which is something I've not done on a regular basis. I've just done camps and things like that in the past. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll see how this season goes and, and if it ties in with the commitments to my, my role as a professor. And then I think long term is kind of continuously develop the students that come through our program and um, still give back to the community in Athens and um, where I'm based right now to to keep and hopefully improve the, the soccer landscape here and then I guess from a from a kind of real ambitious um, mindset would be to somehow I, I miss working at that elite youth level in, in the academy and if, if there's a way to get potentially back in back into that somehow in with Columbus Crew Academy. Um, I don't know if that's going to be able to be done or not, but that is something that, that I'd really like to kind of put myself back in there and challenge myself in there. Uh, and I think that the other thing from an educator perspective is to try and get involved with kind of the the USSF and, and any of the coach education stuff there. And obviously the, mm. the um, uh, what's the coaches association? What's that one, what's that one called? That we go to in the United in Soccer Coaches, yeah. yeah, United Soccer Coaches, and and if they do any coach education aspects and and try to get more involved in that coaching education perspective, mm. um, which is then not in an academic setting but in more of a practical setting, that would be that would be pretty cool to to get involved in and and really start developing that. But that's more long term, I think. Nice. So obviously. You have a, well, not obviously, but you have an email and uh, I know you have a Twitter handle too, which is probably yeah. the two go to. So, what is the contact information you've got there? Uh, Twitter handle is at Ash underscore Allenson, um, A double L A N S O N, uh, which is my last name. And then the contact information for our email can be Allenson at ohio.edu. So, A double L A N S O N. Good stuff. So, well, thank you very much for your time. Remember, Thanks for having me on. Yeah, and remember to the listeners that you can get your copy of the Positive Pedagogy for Sport Coaching Manual, no, I'm kidding, um, textbook at the Routledge website and all good bookstores if you put in Positive Pedagogy for Sport Coaching Second Edition. So I thank you very much for your time today. And if you've got any suggestions or anything, give us a shout, leave us a review and we'll take things from there. Have a good rest of the day, everyone.